Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, as we read verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of God. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if one does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask him for his help. Our Father in heaven, would you help us today not only to hear your word, but to have hearts and ears that are open to what you have to say. Uh, Help us to think and pray as we hear your word, as you have something that we need to be encouraged by this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Back in November, I had the privilege of being part of the installation service for the new pastor at Hope PCA in Portland. And one of the passages that I read during his charge was from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And in that verse, Paul reminds the church of Ephesus that elders are a gift from God. Uh, They are a gift from God given for the work of building up the church until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And to me, that was just so striking, uh, this idea of elders being a gift from God. Uh, I think that's really important. It's an important passage for us to keep in mind as we read what Paul has to say here today, as we remember that while we talk about the qualifications of elders, we remember that it's ultimately God himself who raises up an elder. It's God himself who equips an elder for the work of being an elder, and it's God himself who gives him the task and the calling that he has in the first place. So we need to think really carefully to avoid the error of thinking that elders are created by the church, as though the church puts a man in office, as though the church creates elders. Uh, That's simply not the case. It is the work and the gift of God that any church has elders at all. So that being said, God still uses a process. He uses a process to appoint these elders. The first time we see church officers voted on and chosen by a congregation is in Acts chapter 6. Uh, and you remember we looked at Acts chapter 6 last week as we asked, talked about the question of whether women are to be officers in the church. And one of the things you see in Acts 6 is they actually have an election. They actually vote and they actually choose the church officers that are, that are elected in Acts chapter 6. Not only do they have an election for them, they give them exams. They actually sit them down. They actually ask the question, are these godly men? Are these people who are virtuous? Are these people that we want serving as officers in the church? Um, one of the things that you do hear in some quarters, even of Presbyterianism, is that Acts chapter 6 is not the election of deacons, that these are just table waiters. 
And I have never given a waiter of tables the sort of exams that they give them in Acts chapter 6. Um, that, is, that is some real concern for who's waiting the tables if that's all that Acts chapter 6 is. Uh, instead, you see them going, is this a godly person? Is this somebody who's wise? Is this somebody who's virtuous? To be really blunt, you don't actually need those things for somebody to just set food down at a table if that's all they're doing. So Acts chapter 6 is not just somebody waiting tables. This is the office of deacon there. And in, in fact, when was the last time we had an election to decide who was going to be putting food out? Uh, it's, it's been a while, I'm, not since I've been here at least. So, so you have this moment in Acts chapter 6 where they have an election. And then the passage tells us uh, in, uh, in Acts chapter 14 that elders were appointed in every church, that, that they didn't actually have a church. They did not have a biblical church until that gathering of believers also had elders. So elders were a necessity for the church. So the process of appointment of elders likely followed, I think, the same process that the choice of deacons involved, where the congregation is told, pick out from among you men of good repute whom we will appoint to this duty. So the process of our church looks something like this. And because it's the month of February, because we have we have opened up nominations for elders and deacons at this time. I think it's probably a good idea for, for me to just tell you basically the process that we follow. And I want you to see how closely this dovetails with what we see in the New Testament. Uh, the process in our church looks like this. The congregation nominates those who meet the qualifications and who are willing to serve. The elders of the church then spend time training and teaching and examining and preparing the nominees for the office of elder. Uh, that's basically the next stage beginning af at the end of February. Um, um, now, now, one thing that may happen is um, in the process of uh, being trained for elders, they may discover, hey, look, this is not exactly for me. I'm not qualified for this. Maybe I'm unable to. Maybe I can't give the time to this office. Um, but one of the things that the process does is it helps someone make sure, even examining their own heart, that they're eligible in the first place to be voted on. And then after the congregation gets a 30-day notice, so when it's time for the election, we're going to send out a notice at least 30 days in advance. We're going to let you know, hey, there's a congregational vote happening on X date. And then when that happens, the congregation will vote on those who are nominated, who are willing, who are qualified. And then what happens? Will the elders pray for them and the elders ordain this person to office unless they're already ordained, if maybe they've served as an elder before, at which point they will be installed in their office. So this is, this is really very close to the process we find in the New Testament. Now, if you go to our book of, book of church order, which Charlie drew some attention to it this morning, we're always tinkering with it and changing it, and uh, that's why we put it in a three-ring binder and don't put it in a hardbound book, because we're always tearing pages out and putting new ones in. Um, but our book of church order gives some extra details for the sake of order, but really, if you're highlighting the reality here, all of the basics of the process of, of election of elders and deacons happens the way that we find them in Acts chapter 6, and according to the qualifications the rest of the New Testament lays out. Now, why am I telling you all of this? You know, when I was in, in seminary, church polity was the last class every student wanted to take. It was the one that everybody goes, well, can I put it off till the last semester? Um, and I, as I've been a pastor now, I find church polity more exciting, and I find it more important than I did, certainly, when I was in seminary. So why am I telling you all of this? Why am I giving you all of this laborious, maybe you think unnecessary detail? My point is this, 
Not only do I want you to know roughly what the process is, but I want you to know that all of this is done on the one hand by people. There's a process and all of that involves people in the church, people in the congregation, elders speaking to one another, elders speaking to those in the congregation who are eligible, congregation members talking to those who may be eligible and may be uh, uh, eligible to be nominated. Those are all people who are involved in the process. A real world, feet on the ground process. And then at the same time, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, that it's really God who is raising these elders up and, and deacons up and giving them to the church by means of the process. So it's God, but he's using a process to do it. So before we talk about the specifics, let's, let's keep following the flow of this passage that we find ourselves in here in, in 1 Timothy. How do we get to this point where Paul is talking about the role of the elders? Well, remember, this is a letter where the goal is to promote the health of the church, making sure that Timothy is serving Ephesus well. Uh, Paul is very concerned that, about protecting the unity of these churches, and so he's been, been taking aim at the sort of culprits, the little paper cuts that after a thousand of them can just wear a church down and wear church leadership down and damage Christian unity. He deals then with the issue of false teachers, uh, the confusion that can come from disputes over the roles of men and women in the church. And one of the things we saw is that Paul said part of this boundary that protects the unity of the church, and we saw this last week, is that women may not teach or exercise authority over men in the church. However, there could be a misunderstanding. This is actually the part where it's really important that these verses today are here. Because here's the misunderstanding, and I think some people may even have it when they think about a denomination like ours where only men can hold office. The misunderstanding may be this. Maybe they think we're saying that all men are qualified to be officers in the church. If you're listening to Paul and he's talking about how women may not serve in office, if he just stopped there, you might be left going, well, that means that any man in the church is qualified to be an officer. And so Paul is dispelling that. He wants us to know, no, that's not the case. That's not what Paul is saying. Instead, he takes us on a deep dive. He wants to show us the qualifications for elder in the church. Um, and he will see this deacons next week. The, the qualifications are actually very important. It turns out there is more to being an elder or a deacon than just being a man. There's more to it. And so if I could break the passage down into two points, let me suggest this outline. The first point being the office. And the second point being the qualifications. So the office, the qualifications. Let's talk about both of those. Uh, first, this morning, we have the office. Uh, the office Paul is speaking of is the office of elder. The word he uses here is episcopus. Uh, you might know that as the word bishop if you've ever heard of an episcopal church. That is a bishop-led church. Now, I actually will suggest, and we'll talk about this in a moment, Presbyterianism is also a bishop-led church, but... I'll tell you why I don't want to confuse you too much, and I just did. So, um, the, the ESV translates that word as overseer. The NASB translates that word as overseer. Um, what you find in the New Testament is that Paul uses these interchangeable words, all of them to refer to the same office. They're all referring to the office of elder. Sometimes Paul uses the word presbyter or elder to refer to this person. Sometimes he uses the word overseer. Um, when he uses these different words, here's what he's not doing. 
He's not saying there are three different offices that all basically have this function like an elder and they're just a little bit different and he uses a specific title for each. What he's actually doing is he's not talking about different levels of the office of elder. He's not talking about one elder who's higher than another. He's not saying a bishop is higher than an overseer and an overseer is higher than an elder. What he is saying is this office has different functions. Sometimes a presbyter or an elder is, is a word that's uh, Jewish in origin. Bishop is a word that's Greek in origin. Both of them speak of the same office, but, but putting a different emphasis on the responsibilities of being an elder, right? So when an elder oversees, what are they doing? They're looking out for the life of the church. When an elder shepherds, you know, shepherd is another word for pastor. When an elder shepherds, what is that? That's personally caring for the spiritual life of the members of the church. One of the books we're going to be reading in elder training is called With a Shepherd's Heart. One of the reasons why we, that book is such a precious book, at least to me, uh, is that it emphasizes the fact that the elders of the church are not just uh, you know, sort of a board overseeing an organization, but rather elders are meant to be shepherds. We're meant to care for the souls of people. That's our primary job is not, oh man, we're really good at running meetings. Presbyterians should be really good at running meetings, but that is not why we're pastors. That's not why we're elders. So when elders shepherd, they're personally caring for the spiritual life of members of the church. And when the passage, when Paul calls us elders, elders are being spoken of with regard to their stage in life. They're being spoken of uh, as with regard to their experience. But again, if, if it all comes down to one office, it can all be boiled down to the office of elder. And you realize there's a fullness to this office. You realize that there's a richness of the office. And that's why Paul uses different terms to refer to the same office. Um, again, Paul addresses Timothy and, and specifically he wants Timothy to know how to deal with those who aspire to this office. That's the verb he uses here. He wants to talk about those who aspire to the office of elder. Um, you know, it's natural within the church for somebody who maybe has theological interests, they, they like reading books, they rejoice to be part of the church, they take their spiritual life seriously, um, they, they do meet the qualifications Paul speaks of, and maybe they wonder to themselves, maybe someday I would serve as an elder. They ask themselves that question. Themselves that question. Um, Paul says that if somebody wonders that, or, or maybe if somebody even yearns for that, maybe you know it's not time for you, but you do hope someday to be a man who could serve as an elder, Paul wants you to know that is not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing at all. That's actually a good thing for you to aspire to that office. In fact, I would suggest that all qualified men in the church should aspire to the office of elder to be such a man that could one day have someone come to them and say, I think that you could be an elder in our church. What do you think? And to be asked that question. It's important for, for each man, I think, even young men, even, even boys in the church to begin saying, God, shape me into somebody who could one day be an elder for your church. Aspire to make that a part of your spiritual life. Um, Paul says that is a good thing. Paul says that it's right for you to, to aspire to this. So that's why Paul says that if someone aspires to this office, he aspires to a noble thing. Literally in the Greek, Paul is saying it's a good work to aspire to the office. Now, why is it a good work? Why? I mean, I think it's sort of like what I just mentioned. There is this presumption here. If somebody's pursuing this office, then they're going to be pursuing the things that go along with it, right? They're going to be aiming at being somebody who is qualified in the way that Paul is talking. 
And that means that's a sanctifying process. That's a, that's a process that works on your heart. Um, there's something about the office of elder that does have a way of sobering you up. Uh, when the very thought of being an elder crosses the mind of a person who loves the Lord, it can be a very serious thought. It can even be a frightening thought, right? Could I possibly consider doing this thing that in my own heart I know that I have no natural power to do? That's a sobering thought. So the, the office... And the the consideration of the office, the aspiration to the office, what does it do? It drives a man to grow in holiness so that he he might be able to serve, so that he might be useful to the church one day. Paul says that's a noble thing. That's a good thing. He says that's a good work. Part of what makes this aspiration noble is is not not the office in itself, but it's the task that elders are are given. You think about this, what does an elder do? You may be sitting there going, yeah, that's what I wish you had said in the first sentence. What does an elder do? <laughs> what do these elders do? I, I, they went to a Presbyterian meeting. They, they went on a vacation to Alaska. What do elders do? Um, I'm going to go to Alaska. Um, well, our book of church order does a good job of explaining and sort of boiling it down. I am going to read it, but I'm going to read it with vim and vigor so it doesn't sound like I'm reading. Okay. So listen, listen carefully. Listen to the calling of the office of elder. And again, as I read this, just think about this, that this is, this is a time when we're thinking about that very question in our own congregation. Who might among us be qualified and able, perhaps, by God's gifting to do this? Well, let me read. It belongs to those in the office of elder, both severally and jointly, to watch diligently over the flock committed to his charge, that no corruption of doctrine or of morals enter therein. They must exercise government and discipline and take oversight, not only of the spiritual interests of the particular church, but also the church generally when called thereunto. They should visit people at their homes, especially the sick. They should instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children of the church. They should set a worthy example to the flock entrusted to their care by their zeal to evangelize the unconverted, make disciples, and demonstrate hospitality. All of those duties which private Christians are bound to discharge by the law of love are especially incumbent upon them by divine vocation and are to be discharged as official duties. They should pray with and for the people, being careful and diligent in seeking the fruit of the preached word among the flock. Um, I, I hope that as you hear that list of responsibilities, that you feel like God has used the elders that he has raised up at Evergreen to do what is described here. That is my hope, that you have been prayed for, that you have been looked out for, that you have been loved well. Um, I, I also hope that the uh, thinking about the duties of the elders spurs you to pray for the elders that you do have. I hope that that looked like a daunting list. I hope that sounded like a daunting list. I hope that sounded intimidating because it is. And if an elder ever thinks about what he's called to, he feels a bit of trepidation. Um, and he's glad that people are praying for him. So please pray for the elders of your church. Um, even as we read this list, my suspicion is every elder in this congregation heard those words and thought immediately of the areas where they're falling short. And there are areas where we fall short. Um, and there are some areas that we, we hope and we desire to do better in than others. But, but this is a task that we've been given. And it's the target that we're supposed to aim at. 
So you could see then why Paul says this is a noble calling. He, he says it's a noble calling because it aims at the spiritual nurture of God's people, because it's about more than just the man himself. It's about more than even just his family. Instead, it's about the whole church, and because it's an important work. The church of Jesus is precious to God. God loves his church. Think of, think of if you were to go on a long trip. Let's say you were going to be gone for months. Let's say that you were going to be leaving your family. What would you do before you leave? You would go and you would talk to the people in your life that you trust the most, that you care the most about, that you believe that you could, that you could, that you could depend upon them. And you would say, would you please help my family? Would you please be there for my family? And in a sense, trusting them, trusting your family with this person. And in a sense, that's what Jesus has done with his church. He still rules over his church, but he has also decided to entrust the church into the care of mortal men. And that is incredibly daunting. The very thought that God uses men at all, actually, is very shocking. It's gracious of him. But let's say, let's say a man desires the office. Let's say a man aspires to the office. Let's say a, a, a man is considering this. What what else needs to be present in their life to help confirm that he should be an elder or that he's qualified? Well, that brings us to point two, which is the qualifications that Paul gives us here. Now, beginning in verse two through verse seven, he gives these traits that we should consider when we're thinking of elders. He seems to give three categories of qualifications. He, he gives qualifications of character. What kind of person is this man? He gives qualifications of leadership. Does he know how to care spiritually for others? Does he know how to lead? And then he mentions qualifications of experience. Uh, Is he someone who walks with the Lord and has walked with the Lord before and has a history of walking with the Lord so that he can help others to do the same? Those are the three, if you could really summarize it, those are the three qualifications that Paul talks about. Now, qualifications are important and standards matter. They're they're reflected in the weightiness of the office Paul already talked about. Uh, Later in the book, in chapter 5, Paul reminds Timothy not to be hasty in laying on hands. He says, don't be in such a hurry to have more elders that you're willing to cut corners, that you're willing to overlook serious problems with an individual who's being considered for elder. Uh, I was speaking to my mentor, Charlie Winger, just this last week. He said, I would rather have one good elder than six bad elders. Um, and he's, he's right. It's better to have less leadership, but quality leadership in a church. We are not looking for quantity. We're looking for quality. And I think that's why Paul lays out the qualifications. If all you needed was warm bodies in seats, then anybody could do it. And Paul says, no, no, no. You would be better to have one good elder than six bad elders. And so why does he mention these qualifications? Because they are important. So let's look at the qualifications Paul mentions. Um, Let's look at the qualifications of character first. Qualifications of character. First, Paul says that an elder should be above reproach, uh, meaning he should be somebody who's known for his integrity. He should be known as someone that that you couldn't bring a legitimate charge against him. Um, This is a person who is, is a mature person. This is somebody who is solid, who's got proven character. He should be above reproach. He should be an honest person. He should be somebody who's known as a godly man. A second, Paul mentions him being the husband of one wife. Um, 
I will just mention, uh, I've been reading a biography of Julius Caesar, and some of the remar most remarkable stuff in the book is actually learning about Roman culture. And in 70, 80 BC, around the time when Julius Caesar rises to power, what happens? Well, the culture of the day is such that it is typical and unremarkable for a Roman man to be married, and his relationship with his wife is one of procreation. It is all about having children. And apparently, the, the biographer of, of Caesar remarks that we don't see a great deal of discussion uh, amongst Caesar's enemies as to his uh, nocturnal activities. He had a great number of women outside of his marriage, and it's remarked upon a great deal and not in a negative way. His enemies don't look at his philandering and think, look at this. This is so terrible. Instead, what the biographer mentions is that it is entirely typical in the Roman culture for a man not to be a one-woman man. He actually, they actually say that it's entirely normal for a man to have his wife at home and then to have all the other activities that he wants to do on the side. And in the day that Paul is writing this, that is still the Roman culture. And so when Paul says that this is somebody who is supposed to be a one-woman man, he's talking about someone who is not like Caesar. He's talking about someone who is not like your typical Roman of the day. What kind of man does Paul want? He wants a man with one wife and no one else. No one on the side. This doesn't mean, by the way, that a one-woman man doesn't mean that he can't be an elder if he's single. Um, if single people couldn't be elders, then there would be one huge glaring problem, and that is the author of this book that we're reading this morning would not be qualified to be an elder, because Paul explicitly tells us in his letters that he wishes everybody could be single like he is. Um, so Paul would be disqualified. So we know that Paul's not saying you can't be single and be an elder. He says you need to be the type of man who is honest and loyal to your wife, and you're chaste. Um, this requirement applies to married people. It means that if there is a single man who's an elder, he should be chaste. I think that should go without saying. Uh, it also doesn't mean that someone who has had a divorce on biblical grounds could not necessarily be an elder down the road. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't wisdom discussions to be had there, but it does mean that he should be someone who has been maritally faithful to his wife. He should still, even if he is divorced and even if there are a lot of issues to work through, that he should still be a one-woman man. So it's not a description of marital status. It's a description of moral character that Paul is setting forth here. Um, Paul also says, continuing on with the, the characteristics, the personal character of an elder, he says an elder should be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, and hospitable. Uh, he also mentions he shouldn't be greedy. He shouldn't be a drunkard. Um, in other words, if you really summed all of this up, this is a guy who takes the things of God seriously. This is somebody who takes life seriously. This is somebody who demonstrates that the Spirit of God reigns in his own life. He's not out of control. Uh, right now, uh, in the, uh, uh, the grade school chapel uh, at St. Stephen's, We've been going through this idea of being self-controlled and exploring this idea of self-control. Um, part of being a self-controlled person is actually the discipline that it takes to be self-controlled. Self-control isn't something that we just naturally have. It's something we develop. Um, the week that I was doing chapel, uh, I asked the, 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 the children about something that they can control, and a little girl said, her violin. She said, I can control my violin when it's in my hand. 
And, you know, I just kind of on the fly was thinking, and I just asked her, you know, when did it take practice to learn to control your violin? And she said, oh, yes. And that's the truth, is that discipline takes work. It takes effort. It takes repetition. And it takes practice. This is part of why I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but that's why it takes experience. Paul says we don't want somebody who's a brand new Christian doing this. It needs to be somebody who's developed these things in his own life. Um, Paul mentions another qualification. He says an elder should be able to teach. Uh, They need to be able to teach because the church depends on them to disseminate truth. They need to be receiving truth. And if you have an elder who's not able to teach, you have an elder who's not able to lead. Um, I believe part of being an elder, whether it's being a ruling elder or whether it's being a teaching elder, is conquering your own fear of public speaking. Um, An elder needs to be able to stand and speak on an important subject, instruct God's people and what they need to know. Um, If a man is paralyzed to be in front of a crowd and, and is not able to teach when needed, that's a problem. That's a problem for the church. Now, actually, I have a secret. I was asking my, uh, again, my mentor, Charlie Wingard, uh, when did you stop being afraid to get up in front of a group of people? And he said, I never stopped. Um, And this is a guy who's been pastoring for 40 plus years. And he said, I never stopped being afraid. And he says, but that fear is good. That fear is is right. You you should tremble to go into the pulpit and speak or read God's word or to, to lead God's people in prayer. So we're not actually saying that you need to not be afraid of public speaking. It's about conquering that fear. It's about being able to do it. Um, the church should be able to depend on an elder to be able to teach. It doesn't mean he has to actually be the best teacher ever. He doesn't have to be a good teacher, but he has to be able to teach. So Paul sets the bar low there, but he, he says we've got to get in there somewhere. Um, Paul also mentions, we're still talking about character. He talks about gentleness, which I think is fascinating that Paul would include gentleness in this list. You know, I think Paul includes gentleness because it is an old, old problem of human nature to think that loudness and charisma and a domineering attitude means somebody is a good leader. It is easy for us to think that the loudest voice in the room must be a great leader. Uh, I realize I'm so loud that I could do this without the mic, uh, but hopefully, even if I had a little voice, it would still be all right. Um, How many of us think of gentleness as a hallmark of good leadership? We don't think about that when we think about leaders in a secular context, do we? We want the loudest person. We want the strongest person. We want the strong man. We want someone who can do, someone who has power, someone who has strength, someone who demonstrates uh, veracity that way. And we don't think of gentleness. I think this is important for Paul to mention this. I think that's why it's important, because it is counterintuitive. How many men are known for their gentleness? We need to dispense with gender stereotypes that say gentleness is a feminine trait. It is meant to be a masculine trait. We can see it right here. Gentleness is meant to be a Christian trait. So we need to be honest. We need need to be gentle. Because here's what gentleness is. Gentleness is strength and power that is restrained. Strength and power restrained is what gentleness is. And so instead, we need to think of, think of it that way. We need to think of it instead of, um, instead it's to be committed to speaking to someone in a way that's called for in a given moment with spiritual care. You talk to somebody who, ne- who needs to be confronted and you could just pull out the cannon 
And there are so many things that could be said to this person. And instead, what does gentleness say? Gentleness says, what, do, what would it be wise to say to this person, even though perhaps I could bring an argument that would blow them away? But you would lose the person, right? You would lose the person. Because sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, it is harshness, even though you're right, even though you're correct, even though everything you say is true, and you lose the argument. You lose the person. Gentleness says, I need to know what to say, when to say it. I need to know how to say it. Even though I could say lots of things because I have all the information, I have all the knowledge, I have all the arguments stored up. But what do I need to use right now? That's gentleness. Gentleness, restraint. Jesus lived a life and ministry of restraint. Jesus is constantly holding back. (laughs) Jesus' whole ministry is holding back. He's looking at people and he's seeing people. He weeps over them. He's seeing people and they anger him. He sees people and he could just bring all of his fury and he doesn't do it. The elder needs to be capable of being firm. The elder needs to be able to strike the wolves when necessary. Sometimes that's necessary. You know, Paul talks to Timothy about that in this letter, about how to address people who are bringing falsehood into the church and poisoning the church. But here's the deal. He also needs to be able to gently tend God's flock, God's sheep. He needs to have a personality and a heart that has different volumes depending on what is called for on the occasion. Have you ever known a man that you actually thought to yourself, that guy does not have a gentle bone in his body? Such a man is not qualified to be an elder. These are the character qualifications that Paul is speaking of here. Now, while we examine men for their theological knowledge as elders, there is more to being an elder than, and, just, and being a deacon than just mere knowledge, just having a lot of books. This is one of the things you learn over time, especially the longer you're in the ministry, is you can know people who have head knowledge, but they're actually monsters. Someone can know a lot and yet be sorely lacking in Christ-like character. Someone can read all the right theologians and not be striving to make practical progress against sin in their own life. So please notice this. What Paul requires of elders when it comes to their Christian character is really just Christian character. You notice this in the list that even though all of these things are called for, even though these are all things that he says need to happen, it's not extraordinary. It's not super super spiritual what he says here. This is not next level spirituality that Paul is is teaching here. He he doesn't require that they be miracle workers or, or gurus. They're not required to show that they're somehow more spiritual than anyone else in the church. I am 100% convinced in every church that I have pastored that there are people in the church way more sanctified than me. I see it all the time. If it was a requirement that you be the most spiritual person in the room, then I couldn't be the pastor. So the standard here is, is actually very mundane. You must be a Christian. You must be living as a Christian. You must be pursuing the Christian life. Why is that the case? Elders should be a living demonstration that the gospel can be lived out. Again, they're not meant to be models of perfection. Elders are supposed to exhibit that. We're supposed to be exhibit A that the Christian life can happen. We're supposed to be exhibit A uh, of a mortal person who isn't Jesus, who is still seeking every day to follow after Jesus. So the qualifications for elder are they're reasonable, they're realistic, they're not extreme. Paul also mentions another qualification. I'll call this the qualification of leadership. 
Um, the thing he mentions is a, a history of leadership. In verse 4, he says, The prospective elder must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Um, if, we've st- if you're an elder in, in this room and you've still got children at home, this is one of those passages that make you go, ah. <laughs> um, what does it look like to manage your own household well? Uh, if you've ever come to our house, there's an awful lot of running around, screaming, yelling, just stuff that you wouldn't expect. I might even be able to hear it through the front door, I probably. Um, textually, what does it mean? Textually, it means that he presides over. Uh, it means that he's in charge of his home. It's in, he's in charge of his children, that his children should be under control. Um, Paul talks a little more about this in Titus 1.6. He says that an elder's children should be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, he basically says that how he cares for his family is going to reflect how he cares for God's family. Um, and by the way, I just think, I think that this talks about those who are living under the elder's roof. I, I don't think that it's saying that if you have a child who has grown and who has abandoned the faith, that therefore you're not allowed to be an elder. Uh, if you have children that are out of the house and they have renounced Christ even, I don't think that, that he's saying that. He's talking about the, the household over which he presides. Um, I have known churches where they removed someone from being an elder because an adult child left the faith. I don't think that is, I don't think that is exactly what Paul is talking about here. Um, he's asking the question, do the children respect their father? Do they listen to their father? Um, does the wife believe in his leadership? Um, is the wife willing to have him as, as an elder? Um, the, the headship of the home, is that being observed? Do they recognize and follow him as someone that they listen to? Do they care what the father says in the household? Are they being spiritually fed at home? Um, is he physically providing for his family? Is he a hard worker who isn't lazy? Um, is he teaching those under his roof to love the things of God? Um, are his wife and children, if they're, if they're living at home, are they part of the church? Are they being discipled in the things of God? Are they, do they attend church? So, Notice, I think this qualification looks at how the man leads in other areas of his life. And what does Paul do? He extrapolates out from that how he's going to lead the church. Right? He does that right where he says, if he can't do this, then how can we expect him to do that? If he can't do this for his family, well, he's going to have to do that for the church. How do we know he's going to do that for the church if he won't do it at home? So finally, I want to point out that Paul also mentions a qualification of experience for the elder because he says an elder should be a Christian who has real experience living these things out. In verse 6, he says he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The phrase he uses here is newly planted. That's what the, the Greek phrase means. Just if you translated it literally, he must not be a newly planted Christian. Um, his roots need a chance to grow down into the soil of the gospel. The concern here for Paul is not that the new convert isn't a Christian. His concern is that this new Christian doesn't have the experience of living these things out. That Not only that, but what Paul mentions here is that a new Christian has a specific sin that he may be especially vulnerable to, and that is the danger of being puffed up. Pride is a serious danger when it comes to church leadership especially. It's always a danger in all leadership, but it's a, a danger in church leadership. 
because it's a, it's a temptation that, that sort of sits at the edge of your periphery if you are in church leadership all the time. Unless you have spent years learning the pitfalls of your own heart, studying your own weaknesses, realizing your absolute constant never-ending need for Jesus, you might end up falling and falling hard. Pride is an incredible ever-present danger. And Paul says, if you're a new convert, you are better off being a church member, praying for God's people, encouraging people, serving the church well in a non-ordained capacity for years on end. Paul says, you should be doing that. He says, do that before you aspire to be an elder. Um, Such a person should be given opportunities to serve, opportunities to teach, opportunities to have his gifts tested, but there should be no rush to make him an elder. Um, As Paul says later on, we should not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Uh, Now, I have no struggle making an application this morning from the text. This text is very practical. Uh, This text is not at all abstract. I'm sure you sense that as well. I think the application has two levels to it. On the one hand, you have application for those who are already elders. And then on the other level, you have uh, application for those who aren't yet elders, but they're considering it. Um, For current elders, this passage is marbled throughout with serious, sobering reminders of what it means to be an elder, reminders of what God expects of us, reminders of the weight of the office that God has called us to. Um, As I was preparing this sermon originally, what struck me was how basic God's expectations are of the elders, but also how I have this incredible duty to live as a Christian, Um, not as a sinless person, but as somebody who's repentant, someone who's repenting, um, someone who's called to raise up my own family in the way the scriptures say that we should, um, called to live out the same things that God tells all Christians to be and to do. This passage also speaks to those who are considering serving as elders, either in the near term or in the longer term. Um, One of the things I hope the men of this church will, will do is, I hope the men of this church will be willing to ask God the question, would you have me serve? Is this something that you have called me to? Do I even fit the qualifications to begin with? And if I do fit the qualifications, am I willing to do it? Am I willing to give the time that, that it's necessary? Um, one of the things that all prospective elders should know is that it does require much of your time, uh, a great deal of your thoughts and preparation and prayers to serve God's church as elders. Um, There is self-sacrifice involved where you end up sacrificing your time that you would sometimes give to other things. You know, our our elders spend more time being elders than you might guess. Uh, Going to Presbytery means they usually have to take vacation time that they would have spent with their families. Um, Same thing goes for General Assembly. When they go to General Assembly, they take a week of vacation, and they give that to the church when they do that. Um, We meet as a session at least once a month, and that can sometimes keep us here until sometimes midnight or close to it. Um, There is a real time commitment. Yet also, please consider this. God may have given you the gifts and abilities and been developing those things in you for a number of years. Might it be that he has been fashioning you into someone who can and will serve his church as an elder? Is it possible God has been shaping you for just such a time as this? But also, I would suggest that you be open to the sort of examination Paul talks about here Um, I think it's possible that even if you're nominated and you agree to go through the examination process, that the elders in in love and in care and in concern may, 
They could, in the process, come to you and ask you to please consider withdrawing your nomination until a later time. They may say, we think that now is not the time. And, and it's my hope that you will be willing to hear that as well, even as you sort of embark upon this. If someone nominates you, be willing to hear hard things. Are you willing to hear that? Are you willing to abide by it? Um, such an encouragement would not come from malice. It would not come from animus. It would come from a love for Jesus' church. So, so please, as you come, if you do come, come in humility and be open to correction and, or constructive criticism or whatever might be exposed or seen in the process. Now, I will mention a third group that I think this passage speaks to, and that is those who are considering nominating someone for elder. Um, through the end of the month of February, the session is going to be opening up nominations for the Office of Elder and Deacon. If you're a communing member of this church, then you have the right to nominate someone. Though, uh, let me talk about a rookie mistake for a moment. When I was in my very first PCA church, I was so excited to be in a PCA church, I couldn't wait. And there was one particular man in the church who had been leading a Bible study. I'd spent a lot of time with him, and I thought, this man, why isn't he an elder? And so I went to the elders of the church and said, I want to nominate this man for office. And they said, is he willing to serve? And I said, I don't know. I wanted to nominate him. <laughs> they said, go ask him first. <laughs> so you got to ask the person before you do that, because that can be very embarrassing for someone to say, no, now I actually don't want to. And that's a weird place to put someone in. So learn from my mistakes. Um, I hope you've been listening to this message today and thinking of the men of this church, some of whom you maybe have known for a long time, some of whom you maybe haven't known for a long time, but you're struck by the godliness and the Christian character that God's been working in them. Um, I hope that you are thinking of this question for the remainder of this month. I hope that you're praying along these lines to the Lord. Who would you have among us that fits this office? Who are the men among us who seem to have these qualifications that Paul talks about? Now, next week, we're going to talk about the office of deacon. We're going to talk about what the office is, what it's for, what the qualifications are. So I really hope that, that we will wait until next week so we can see both offices clearly. And I want you to understand the differences between the offices. But, but understand this, both offices are important, but they are also very different and they are distinct. So please stay tuned. Come back next week. Um, I want to conclude, though, by going back to what I said at the beginning. Church leaders are gifts from God to his people. God gives these people to the church. The church doesn't create them. We don't raise them up. We don't even really choose them ultimately. Ultimately, we believe that God uses the process that he's given us in his word to put those in office that he's called for just such a time. All God does is use us as members to make his choice known. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you love your church. You love your people. And because of that, you give elders to your church. Would you, over the remainder of this month, give us wisdom and insight as we consider whether you've been in the process of training, raising up qualified men among us to serve your people and to love the saints as elders for your church. Stir the hearts of your people to see it. Stir the hearts of prospective elders, Lord, giving them a willingness to serve if called to do so. And if they are qualified in some ways, oh God, make them still humble enough to hear and receive it if there are red flags. Make the current elders of your church humble and gentle and godly. 
Help us to fulfill the calling that you've given to us. Make us more ready to serve you. Give us hearts that love you and love your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.